Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This episode was recorded in 2009 in Tel Aviv. It is a lightning-fast overview of the historical narrative of Tanakh and is also a partial adaptation of David's well-known lecture, The Whole of the Bible in One Hour. If you are interested in watching a video of the Bible in one hour, please refer to the episode webpage where you'll find a link to a recording from 2014 of The Whole of the Bible in One Hour. For more information, visit David Solomon. Online. I want you to imagine that the four walls of this room, and when I say four walls, I don't want anyone going clever that be any four walls, right? Let's imagine the wall comes across here, right? So it's four walls. That's Jewish history. Follow? I want you to imagine I'm standing here, and that's where we are now. We are now in approximately the year 2000. It's 2009, but let's call that 2000. And let's say that each wall represents a thousand years. Follow? That's 2000. Where we are now? What's that, Abigail? 1000. What's that going to be? Zero. There was, of course, no year zero. People didn't wake up and say, hey, it's the year zero. It's a theoretical construct, but let's put it over there. All right? What's this going to be? Minus 1,000 or 1,000 BCE. In Jewish history, we do not use the terms AD and BC. Jews have never been fond of saying the words Anno Domini. We use CE, which is Common Era, and BCE, before the Common Era. I am aware, and you know that I know, and I know that you know that I know, that there is a whole Jewish Hebraic calendar. We're now in the year 5769, okay? But I'm going to use this counting system because most people are more familiar with it and it works out perfectly with our four walls, okay? 2,000, 1,000, zero, minus 1,000, correct us, minus 2,000. Brilliant. I am now going to start going at 100 miles an hour. You know Jewish history, yep? So let's go, let's go. This is the 20th century. Here's the establishment of the state, the Holocaust. We're in our time machine. We're going back. All right? Emancipation. The 18th century, 17th century, enlightenment. All right? Now, now we're here. Here's Shabtai Tzvi. Here's the Chmielniki massacres. Here we get to about 1500. This is the expulsion from Spain. Right? We cut the Inquisition. This is all the Crusades. There's lots of other things happening as well. Here's the Rambam, you can wave to him. Here's Rashi, here's Rabbeinu Gershom. This is the Gonic period. Here's Sa'ajiga on. We're coming back, we're coming back. Oh, here's the end of the Babylonian Talmud here. Right? This is the, this is the ceiling of the Mishnah. Here is the destruction of the Second Temple. The Rome, here the Romans are in town. Here's the Hasmonean dynasty. Well, here's Alexander the Great. We move back. This is the Persian rule. And boom, where do we end up? We end up with the rebuilding of the second temple, which represents the end of Tanakh. So we've gone back in our time machine with the end of the Bible. Now I want to go to the beginning of Tanakh. 
I want to start with the first Jewish person because most of you are familiar with the Torah narrative. You are mostly familiar with the Torah narrative. Is that correct? You know that Tanakh stands for the Torah part, which is the five books of Moshe. We are pretty familiar with it, so I'm going to do it fairly quickly. But I want to start with the first Jewish person. The first Jewish person is Avraham. Why? Because Avraham comes to a very special realization about his relationship with the creator of the universe. He understands that it's possible individually and collectively to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. That's what makes Abraham so special. He does that through his own rational logical processes. That's phenomenal and it means that all of his descendants have that responsibility to take on themselves their own spiritual journey. Abraham is here. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw a timeline. Let's imagine that's the corner. So I'm going to do a timeline that we're going to call a thousand years. That means I'm going to divide this up. That's going to be minus 1,500. 1,600, 1,700, 1,800, 1,900. This is minus 1,800. This is minus 1,900. I am aware, of course, that there are things happening in the Bible before we get to Avraham. But Avraham is here. That, of course, the story of Avraham is contained in the very first book of the Bible, which is the book of Bereshit. There are many things that happen in the book of Bereshit before we get to Avraham. All right? Of course, we have the creation of the world. If you believe that the six days of creation talked about in Sefer Bereshit actually represent eons of billions of years and that life evolved from microorganisms right up to walking, sophisticated, talking human beings that have a relationship with God and that the earth itself formed out of stellar mass over billions of years and the galaxy itself formed over billions and billions of years from Big Bang, etc, etc. If you want to believe that, you are perfectly entitled to believe that. There are many ancient Jewish sources that will back you up. If you want to believe that we're talking about six 24-hour regular days, and that's what it took to create the world, you can believe that. There are many Jewish sources that will allow you to believe that. It is okay to approach creation in whichever way makes sense to you, because, hello, we were not there. There wasn't even a sun in the moon till the fourth day. And the Torah is a deeply, infinitely deep document, and we are still, history is unfolding its meaning. So therefore, I'm not going to deal with creation. I'm not going to deal, even, with the Mabul, with the flood of Noah. We have many, many ancient cultures that tell us of flood experiences, and we do believe that there was some major cataclysm in the Mediterranean basin that caused massive flood right across the known world at the beginning of the agrarian revolution around about 8000 BCE. If you want to say that's the flood or you want to say that it's a totally different thing or if you want to say maybe a totally different type of destruction is intended, that's okay. There are Many authorities in Machshevet Israel who will allow you to do that. But once we get, and same with the Tower of Babel, but once we get to Avraham, remember that everybody before Avraham is a goy. Some people think, oh, Noah, right? Noah, Noah had a foreskin. The dude was a goy, right? Avraham 
is the first Jewish people. He's the father of the whole of the Jewish people. It's not just Abraham, it's also Sarah. Because they were a unique couple. And that is the beginning of a period in Jewish history that we call the period of the Avot. This period in Jewish history is the period of the Avot. Avraham has a son called Yitzchak. Of course, he has Ishmael as well, but I'm focusing primarily on the continuum of the Jewish people. Yitzchak, Yitzchak marries Rivka. They have two sons. Predominantly, we're interested in who? In Yaakov. Yaakov then has sons and a daughter. Correct us. Now, watch. The most famous, the most famous of Yaakov's sons is... Uh, not yet. Yosef, right? In the book of Bereshit. Yosef, and here's Yosef. And your, now, this is all contained in the book of Bereshit. The book of Bereshit is the beginning of the world, and it's the beginning of the Jewish people. Yosef goes down to Egypt, you all know the story, and he brings the whole family there. The death of Yosef, the end of that generation, is really where Sefer Bereshit ends. So Sefer Bereshit, in a way, if you consider that Abraham is born, you know, here, and if you go according to the literal counting of the years, then Sefer Bereshit covers a period of about 2300 years from the creation of, from Adam up until here. It's like two millennia, it's a big chunk, but we'll start with Abraham. Yosef is, and the whole descendants of Yaakov are now living in Egypt. That's Bereshit. What's the second book of the Tanakh? Shmot, correctly. What's going on in Shmot? Well, of course, 1400, 1300, 1200, 1100. Shmot, of course, these are all minuses, right? Shmot is the story of, first of all, the enslavement in Egypt, where for the first and only time in our history we actually became a subclass within another population, totally enslaved. This period here is the first of a recurring theme in the history of Am Israel that we call Galut. Very good. This is Galut. What's the meaning of the word Galut? This is Galut Mitzrayim. This is the ex- you all know this. I'm doing it really quickly. Okay, so here we are enslaved, and then. Round about here, we are brought out of Egypt by God. God brought us out directly under the administrative leadership of Moshe. So Moshe is here. There's the splitting of the Red Sea. And Moshe brings the whole of Am Yisrael because we're now no longer a collection of, you know, a family. We're now a nation. We're now an Am. So we are Am Yisrael. Why Am Yisrael? Because Yaakov's alternative name is Yisrael. So his children are the Bnei Yisrael. Each of these sons has now become a whole tribe. We're like several million, several, several million people strong. And we stand here on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai. And here's the really important bit. If you do not understand what I'm about to tell you now, your chances of understanding anything about Tanakh or the whole of Jewish history 
are almost futile. This is a seriously, seriously important point I'm about to make now. One of the unique things about Avraham that has big implications for all of the period of the Avot and for all of his descendants is that Avraham made a unique covenant with God. The word for covenant is Brit. This Brit implied that Avraham's descendants would be around at the end of history and that they would survive for a purpose. That purpose was to reveal the oneness of the divine in the world and to bring peace to the world. It's an extremely essential covenant to the whole existence of the Jewish people. (laughs) At Mount Sinai, that covenant is now reconfirmed. The covenant that was made with the Avot, with Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov, is now reconfirmed with an entire nation. That all happens. We're still in the book of Shemot. We're still only in the second book of the Torah, the second book of Tanakh. At Sinai, God said many things. Many things. But they can all be boiled down to two words. Which are, essentially, everything God said at Sinai is boiled down to two words. Those two words are, be nice. Be nice. Don't oppress one another. Don't let the gap between rich and poor become too great. Look out for the disadvantaged in society, the widows, the orphans, the underprivileged. Seek justice. Seek righteousness. Be chilled. Be happy. Be nice. I can tolerate many things, says God. I have a little problem with idol worship. But I can tolerate many things. But if you're going to build this ideal society, because that's what the Torah is about. The Torah is a total map ethical, moral and spiritual and historical map for Am Yisrael about how to build its ideal society in the world. If you're going to build it, it must be founded on justice. If you do not found it on social justice, I simply will not let it happen. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Not only that, but if you're, going to found a, if you're going to found the ideal society, look, you have to have somewhere to do it. And we have a place to do it. We have a land. And that land was promised to the Avot. That land is the land of... The land of Canaan, which became the land of Israel. All right? Good. That's very important to understand. God never told the Jewish people to be religious. Nowhere will you find in Tanakh, in the Torah, the rest of Tanakh, anywhere where God says, I want you to be religious. I want you to be from. Nowhere. God tells the Jewish people he wants them to be holy. He wants them to be Kadosh. How is Kedushah predominantly expressed? In relations between people, in justice. We learned that yesterday, in yesterday's parsha. The parsha of Kedushim is all about Kedushah. It's all about holiness. And there we have all the laws for social justice. The Ahav Talarecha Kamocha being the central jewel in that crown. All right. 
That's the key. If you do not understand that our covenant with God is based on building a society based on justice, it's impossible to understand what's going to happen next in Tanakh. People think, oh, God brought us out of Egypt, gave us the Torah, that means we have to be from, we have to be religious. That's nonsense. We must establish a society which is based on righteousness and justice and equality. Everybody follow? Those of you who are running around thinking that to be, to be a religious Jew in today's world means you're naturally right-wing have completely forgotten that the most primary document of left-wing politics in the whole of Western culture is the Torah. I'm not now talking about left-wing, right-wing in terms of today's politics. I'm talking in terms of general political theory. It is simply screaming social justice, righteousness, equality. Everybody follow? Very important to understand that. Now, because we have a place that's been promised to us, promised to the Avot, to build this ideal society, which is this land, the land of Israel, this next couple of hundred years is the story of us moving into the land as a nation. I will get to that in a moment. First of all, we were dealing here with Sefer Shmot. I'll write them here. So, of course, all of this is Bereshit. All of this is Shmot. The whole book of Vayikra was basically given in eight or nine days. That happens here. Vayikra, what does Vayikra mostly deal with? Laws to do with the Kohanim, right? To do with sacrifice, to do with purity and impurity and so on. It's all about what happens in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, by the way, of course, was built in Sefer Shemot. Then we have Bamidbar. What's the meaning of the word Bamidbar? In the desert. I don't know why people call it the Book of Numbers. It's got a perfectly good title, Bamidbar, which means in the desert. Where did it take place? In the desert. It obviously follows a period of nearly 40 years of the wandering. So Bamidbar is here. And then, over the course of the last few weeks of Moshe's life, Devarim, where he basically goes over the whole of the covenantal relationship that extends from the Avot, this whole Brit that is made from the Avot right through to Har Sinai. There's a total unity in the Torah about that idea. We are the descendants of the Avot. We stood at Har Sinai. We received the Torah that is the full affirmation of that covenantal idea. That's what Moshe is going on about in Sefer Dvarim. All right. Now, that's the end of the Torah. Everybody follow? We've done the Torah of Tanakh. Yes? I'm still focusing primarily on history. We need to get the historical overview. This 200, 250 year period here, the last quarter of this millennium, is a period where Am Yisrael, <coughs> having come out of Egypt, are now standing on the verge of entering this land that God has promised the Jewish people. Not everyone regards all of this as history. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. We are pushing back the boundaries. Archaeologists, historians, chroniclers are pushing back the boundaries constantly about what we know about the Tanakh as a historical document. But what do you need in order to have something be considered as capital H history? What do you need? What are we, what, very good, but what is proof? Proof is two independent sources. If the Tanakh tells us that something happened, we can believe it because we have full faith in the word of God and in the Tanakh. 
to us as the Jewish people, that makes total sense. And that's fine. No one can argue with that. But if it's going to be capital H history, as far as the world's concerned, as far as academia and secular studies is going to be concerned, we need independent verification, either archaeologically or in some other chronicle or textual material. Understand that? We don't yet have that here for any of the specific people or events mentioned in Tanakh. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we just need to look at it as a certain phase. If I'm talking historically tonight, I'm going to treat you as adults and not as little kids in Haider. I'm going to tell you that's the story. However, that all changes around here. We move into a totally different phase of Jewish history, which is proto-historic. We have, especially in the last 15, 20 years... Archaeologists have done mind-blowing things and have found some incredible verifications of many of the events mentioned in this period. We have not yet found anything archaeologically which conflicts with Tanakh. So Tanakh more and more is looking to us like it knows what it's saying. But we just have to be aware that it's not yet capital H history. Now, what's super important about this period... What did I say was happening in this period? What are we doing? We're gradually... Here's the land of Israel. That's the land of Israel. We have come out from Egypt. We're moving into it and we are settling it according to our tribal allotments. Each tribe was given a chunk of land and we're settling it gradually. What's happening in the world at this stage? What's happening in the world? This is a really... Josh, that's good. I'm impressed. You're the first person of your age I've discovered that knows that. That's very good. This is, Josh is 100% correct. This is a very important point in world history. It is the transition from the end of the Bronze Age to the beginning of the Iron Age. What does that mean? That means, and that was happening right here. It means that the Hittites, who were one of the local population tribes, had worked out that if you smelt an oven, if you, if, if, if you raise an oven to 800 degrees Celsius, which does require a different leap in technology, you can smelt iron. That meant the end of the late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age. What happens if I come at you and you've got an iron sword and I've got a bronze sword? What's the story there? I'm your breakfast. Okay? There's just no competition. You will literally mince me. There is a technological shift going on and we are at the disadvantage because all the nations here, many of them, the Philistines, the Hittites and so on, have iron and we don't. It's important to understand that in the background of what's going on in this part of Tanakh. Now, what books are covering this part of Tanakh? First of all, at the end of the Torah, when Moshe dies, who comes along? Yehoshua. So Yehoshua is here. Yehoshua is here. And of course, Chazak Ve'ematz is the beginning of Yehoshua. Moshe tells Yehoshua, you know, be strong and of good courage, go take the land. And Yehoshua is really, the Sefer Yehoshua is really a series of military conquests and battles that show that God is totally with Am Israel so long as they do the right thing. They are unstoppable. What is the first major town that they conquer? Yericho. Yericho means the moon city. Obviously from the word Yareach. 
The whole conquest of Yericho is fascinating. I'm not going to go over it in detail, but I hope that if you haven't read it, open up the book of Yehoshua. If you're into battles, if you're into military strategies, if you're into looking at the way in which we began to conquer the land, you'll find it very exciting. But there is an incredible thing about Sefer Yehoshua. If you look at a map, or if you understand it, and you draw a map, and you have a look at what Yehoshua conquered, what would you think you would notice? What did Yehoshua not conquer? He didn't conquer, amazingly, basically, not, well, no, he didn't. But if you look, if you look at the, everybody, is everybody, is everybody familiar with the, basically the map of Israel today? Yeah. Today. No? I'll show you. Here's the map of Israel today, right? That's Israel. Yep. There's Tel Aviv. There's Yerushalayim. So basically what they call, what they call Yehudayim Shomron, the Shtachim, yeah, sort of looks like a big inverse three. Okay, it looks like that. There's the, there's the, the Sea of Galilee, there's the Dead Sea. Alright, so it sort of looks like that. So where, whereas today the state of Israel was founded here, and then in 67 we captured this. Everybody follow? Yeshua is the exact opposite. This is the territory that Yehoshua captured. This is the territory that he didn't. It's very interesting. It's almost like an exact reverse of what we did in 1948. It's extremely interesting. Yehoshua dies, and then we enter into a very, very unique time frame that is deeply similar to our own. What is the next book that follows Yehoshua? Very good, Rachel. It's the book of Shoftim, which is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is going to take us up to around here. Now, the book of Shoftim tells us the really, really key statement in the book of Shoftim. It's said a couple of times about that whole period is what? How's your Hebrew? Good enough, hey? You'll be able to get this. What does this mean? Ein Melech Israel. There is no king in Israel. Ish Hayashar Be'enav Ya'ase. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was like an anarchic democracy. Our main enemy during this period was a people known as the Plishtim, the Philistines, whose cultural and spiritual center was in Gaza. We found ourselves in a situation where we were going through cycles. Every for 20, 40 years, we would be ruled over by some local landlord who would oppress us. Then some hero would arise, help us break free, and we would be free for a while until we were oppressed by someone else. This cycle returned again and again and again. There was no central administration. There was no kingship. There was no one behind whom all the tribes aligned. It was simply individual heroes who would wake up, fight a battle, sort out the problem, and then basically go back to the farm. Who, who knows the names of some of these famous people that lived in the time of Shoftim? How many can we say? Yes, Shoftim. Yeah? Ehud ben Gera, fantastic. Our famous left-handed hero. He's from more or less from the beginning. Who else? Gidon is a very big figure in the... Gidon, in fact, 
So much so was this idea ingrained that there was no central administration that Gidon even refused to take upon himself the potential of a kingship. He didn't want to set up a dynasty. There were no dynasties happening. These guys just sorted problems and went back. Similarly, you've got Dvorah, probably the most famous of the Shoftim, which is Dvorah, the famous uh, war that she conducts with Barak. Uh, you've got, of course, Yiftach. You've got guys like Shimshon, Samson. These are all figures that rose to the fore and then receded into the background as these fights were being fought. Now, at the end of Sefer Shoftim, at the end of Sefer Shoftim, there is, of course, a unique episode that ends up with the complete excommunication and alienation of one of the tribes. Who knows which tribe that was? Very good, Ephraim. Binyamin. A tribe of Binyamin becomes seriously alienated due to some horrendous behavior. Eventually they're brought back in, but they are under serious censure. That's important to remember by the time we get to the end of the book of Shoftim. But people are already starting to see that this system is not necessarily going to work. The system of no central administration. Because we are under threat from all sides. We don't have anyone who can coordinate the defences of our nation. By the end of this period, we're already more or less settled in the high country and the low country. But we have no centralised army. We have no centralised leadership. It's all every tribe for himself. And if you could ally yourself with some of the other tribes and get them to help you if you have a problem, then that was great. But there was no guarantee that all the other tribes would come to your aid. And every couple of years, some other population or warlord would try and make an incursion here. We had basically settled the land, but the situation was not secure. By the way, where, by the time we get to the end of this period, was the spiritual capital. Now, what do I mean by the spiritual capital? Excellent, Shira. Was the spiritual capital? Moshe had built a mishkan, correct? A tabernacle. That mishkan was taken with the Jewish people in their wanderings through the desert. They brought it into the land of Israel. It was at various places. Where is it by now? Shiloh. By the way, what's at Shiloh now? If you look on the hill where they think the mishkan was, what's there? Nothing. Nothing. All right, we're here. What are we about to start now? We're about to start a whole adventure. This is a massive transitional phase in our history that is recorded in Tanakh. We're still deep in the Nuh of Tanakh, and it's going to change everything. We are about to start an absolutely pivotal text in Tanakh. Not only a pivotal text, but one of the greatest pieces of literature that... The Jewish people have ever given the world. It's, it's the beginning of everything. It is, of course, the book of Shmuel. Do not be confused. There is only one Samuel. I know that the Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, and some people get confused. I think, was there two Samuels, perhaps? There's only one Samuel. Someone came along a lot later and said, that's a very big book. Why don't we divide it in half? Samuel 1, Samuel 2. But it's all one big book of Shmuel. And Sefer Shmuel starts here. That's the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel, if it was written by Tolkien, would be called The Rise of the King. Because we are about to see right here, 
a whole shift from this spiritual anarchy that was existing with a loose confederation of tribes to a centralized leadership of a king. And it happens like this. Because there is a big spiritual leader here called Shmuel. And at this time, we went to, the, to Shmuel and we said to him, we would like a king, please. It's about time that we got out of this cycle of repression, liberation, repression, liberation, repression, liberation. Something, we can, this is driving us nuts. We can't keep going like this. We need a centralized leadership. We want a king that all the tribes will unite behind. Samuel goes, you do, guys do not want a king. You know what a king will do to you. And by the way, who in this room has read the book of Royal? Okay, so it's very familiar to you. So the stuff I'm saying, I'll go through it quickly. You don't want a king. A king, <laughs> he's going to lord it over you. He's going to take your sons and put them in his army. He's going to fight wars you don't want. He's going to take your daughters and marry them off to his mates, if not himself. He's going to start huge public works expenditures that you don't need. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all these, Lord, you do not need a king. And they go, we understand all that, but kings are cool. Can we have one, please? Samuel goes to God, and God, of course, says to Samuel, If they want a king. I'll give them the king that they deserve. And we get this tall, hunky guy from the tribe of Binyamin. Precisely the tribe that at the end of the Sefer Shoftim had been basically excommunicated and alienated. That's the very tribe from which we find our first king. And that king's name is Shaul. Shaul is king for a few short years. He's a bit of, turns out to be a bit of a... Well, it's a massively interesting study in the psychology of power, the book of Shmuel. You see Shaul gradually become more and more insecure, paranoid, and so on. Why is he paranoid? Well, because good, because during, during most of Saul's kingship, there is a young Judean shepherd boy called David running around. By the end of Samuel 1, David basically has his own private militia that's doing its own thing. Whoever was responsible for editing that book in two was an absolute genius because Samuel 1 ends. Where does Samuel 1 end? With the death of Shaul and his son Jonathan on Har Gilboa, that big war the Philistines invade is a massive war. Shaul dies, his son dies. Shmuel had also already died in the first book. In fact, towards the end of the first book, Shmuel gets raised from, from the dead by Shaul to ask what's going to happen. The famous thing. All right. By the way, if you haven't read the book of Shmuel or you haven't read it for a while, go and read it again. It's got absolutely everything in it. It's got scandal, wars, sex, dramas, power. It's got everything that you could possibly want from an outstanding novel. Samuel 2 is all about the rise and rise and rise of David. Now it's very important to understand. God makes a separate covenant with David. David is here. Here is King David. This covenant implies that a descendant of King David will always sit on the throne of Yehuda. David unites all the tribes behind him. It's not just the tribe of Yehuda from where he's from, but all the tribes unite behind David, and we now have a totally unified kingdom. 
remember that the whole of the rest of Jewish history, up until the coming of Mashiach, may that happen soon, is really just a loop in order to solve the problem that we went and asked for a king. Because as the prophet Shmuel says, Am Yisrael, you are a unique nation on earth. You are the only people that doesn't need a king. You can have a direct relationship with your father in heaven, direct relationship with God. You don't need a king. You want a king, you're going to have to go through a whole thing in history. Mashiach will come, he'll be the last king, he'll be a great king. And then the ultimate state is we do not have a king. It's just us and God. But no, we had to have a king. So, okay, so we get Saul, doesn't work out. We get David, the big proto-king. Not just proto-king, it's like he's the king, which is the model for all subsequent kings. Now, in the first ten chapters of the book of Samuel 2, as I'm sure you're aware, it just talks about the rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and rise of David, right? Yeah. I'm looking for the time. It's really from chapter 11 that things start to go wrong for David. Why? Who remembers? Well, he no longer is going out to war. He's got some very good generals to do that for him. Saul's big general, of course, was Avner. David has a big general called Joab. Joab is going out doing wars for him. David's at home, balmy evening in Jerusalem, wandering out on his terrace, as you do. Sees, you know, this gorgeous woman bathing on another rooftop, as you do, even today. Has her summoned to him, has relations with her, and turns out, of course, she's married to some other dude. And David organizes for Uriah the Hittite to be killed and so on. It's a very, very big moral scandal. The prophet Natan comes to him and says that that was one of the most unjust things he could have done. David does a massive teshuvah. God forgives him, but ultimately his family will always be plagued with scandal. Therefore, the rest of the whole of the book of Shmuel 2 is really mostly about the tremendous scandals that happen in David's family. And he doesn't really, and including you know, the rebellion of several of his sons and so on at different times, he doesn't have an easy time of it. Eventually, however, he is the greatest king we've ever had. Eventually, David Amelech dies and he is succeeded by his son Shlomo. Remember that today I'm only talking about the Tanakh as historical narrative. I'm not going into content so much. We'll do that next week. It's more historical narrative, but I need to get this sorted. This is going to take us up to 500, minus 500. This is minus 400. No, what am I talking about? Minus 600, minus 700, minus 800, minus 900, okay? Watch. One of the things that David HaMelech did as king was to capture the Jebusite stronghold of Yerushalayim and turn it into the eternal capital of the Jewish people. That happens in around 1000 BCE, about 3000 years ago. When David Amelech dies, his son Shlomo builds a temple in Yerushalayim dedicated to God. That temple is really the story 
of this next 500 year phase in Jewish history. By the way, as you know, as you know, from here onwards, the whole of the Jewish history, the whole of Jewish history is divisible, basically, into 500 year blocks. Because we as a people go through a major transitional phase and different spiritual project every 500 years. That's why this period here is called, in Jewish history, Bayit Rishon, First Temple. This 500 year period is called Second Temple. This 500 year period is called Talmudic. This 500 year period is called Garnic. This 500 year period is called the Rishonim. And that 500 year period is called the Acharonim. But here, this 500 year period is called Bayit Rishon. Everybody with me? So what are we in now? <laughs> well, it's really after the Acharonim. We're now. It depends who you speak to. I think the Achronim ended around 1990. We're probably now, by some people's opinion, in Ikvod of the Mashiach, we would hope. We, we hope we're now in the footsteps of Mashiach. All right. Shlomo HaMelech, together with, I mean, his father already, David, had done this, but King Solomon does something incredible. Between David and Shlomo, they turn the nation of Israel into effectively a regional superpower. Other nations are now paying us tribute. We have the most powerful economy. We have the most powerful army. We're sending ships and merchants right throughout the known world. The temple in Yerushalayim is a place of glory for all the nations. We've effectively entered a messianic period here. But things then go wrong. Apart from the fact that towards the end of Shlomo HaMelech's life, many of his wives and concubines decide that they want to set up places of idol worship, which Shlomo HaMelech turns a bit of a blind eye to. When Shlomo HaMelech dies, by the way, of course, we're no longer in the book of Shmuel. We are in which book? Melachim. So we're in the book of Kings. Once again, there's Kings 1 and Kings 2. Now, it's a very complicated story, the book of Kings, but I'll be trying to summarize it. The book of Kings hinges on a very, very crucial moment that happens after Shlomo HaMelech dies. Who can tell me what that is? Correctus, Shira. Very good. Who knows what Shira's talking about? Right. His son, Rehavam, was to become king. Alright? Rehavam comes out at his, just before his coronation and the people go to Rehavam and they say, you know what, Rehavam? Your dad was a great king. Shlomo Melech, I mean, he was amazing. But you know what? We worked pretty hard. He's been working us very hard. We would not mind a bit of a break. Great king, and we want to help you, but just ease off a bit. Because, you know, he had us building this, he taxed us for this, and he had this. Rechavam goes to the older councillors and he says to them, what do you think of this idea? And they said, if you give these people a break, they will love you forever. He goes to the younger councillors and they say to him, they're just slack. They're lazy. Rechavam comes out and he says, my father chastised you with whips, I'll chastise you with scorpions, you're just lazy, get to work. I'm not interested, I'm going to work you even harder. That was the trigger for the split by Yeruvam bin Nevat, who was a bit of a rebel leader already, even in the life of Shlomo Melech, and he set up in the north, 
his own kingdom. That is what's most important to understand about this whole period. We have how many tribes forming the northern kingdom of Israel? Ten. So ten tribes form the northern kingdom of Israel, and the two tribes of Binyamin and Yehuda, with Yerushalayim as their capital, form the southern kingdom of Yehuda. For the next 200 years, these two kingdoms are working in parallel. Sometimes at war with each other, sometimes at peace, sometimes ignoring each other, but there are two kingdoms in parallel. Everybody follow? Which of the two kingdoms was the more stable? The northern or the southern? Southern kingdom of Yehuda. Why? They had the Davidic dynasty. Just politically. They knew who was going to take over after the death of any king. They had the Davidic dynasty. In the north, the main mode of succession for several generations was assassination. If you woke up one morning and said, I wouldn't mind being king of the northern kingdom of Israel, you took your best knife, you went to where you had to go to, and if you had a chance, you would stick it to the king, and if you were lucky enough, you would become king. It was very violent. The northern kingdom did not really establish any dynasty, so to speak, of until here, where we established the house of Omri. By the way, by the time we get to the house of Omri, we are pretty much now in objective history. Omri and others around this period are mentioned in chronicles of other nations and so on. All right. But the southern kingdom, the situation was more stable. But what is the hallmark of this period? The hallmark of this period in the book of Melachim is the constant degradation of social justice. Even during times of economic prosperity, the, especially during times of economic prosperity, the gap between rich and poor was becoming greater. People were becoming abused by the system. There were not equal facilities of justice for all. The law was different for other people. The leadership was corrupt. And moreover, there were huge swathes of idolatrous cults invading the population. We can't imagine what this is like today. At the time of Bayit Bishon, we as a nation, except for a very few, came under the sway of huge idolatrous cults. The most famous and predominant of those cults was the cult of... There were several, but what was the most famous of this period? In fact, this cult was a widespread idolatrous cult right across the Middle East. But for some reason, we loved it more than anyone else. Baal! It is precisely because of the... Remember that social injustice and Avodah Zarah go hand in hand because they are both the pursuit of power. At around this time, we start to see the rise of some serious, a serious new institution in Am Yisrael, the concept of the Navi, the prophets who were screaming the words of God and screaming about social justice to kings and all people. The greatest of the Nuvim of this whole period, who does not have his own book, but is without a doubt, he's running around in Sefer Malachim, he's the greatest of the prophets of this age, is of course Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi is here, and Eliyahu Hanavi is fighting kings like Ahav and his wife Izevel who are misappropriating, corruptly misappropriating land. They are engendering entire projects of social injustice. The 
Kings won basically ends halfway during the career of Eliyahu Anavi. I have to move on quickly because we're going to run out of time. This period here actually sees two very stable kings in both kingdoms and economic prosperity. In the north, in the north was Jeroboam II. Yeroboam, Yeroboam Hasheni, and in the south it was the king of King Uziah. And yet it's precisely at this time that social justice became more and more corrupt and we start to see the rise of the big Nevi'im that we now know. Who was the first, who have their own books, which we're going to discuss next week. Who was the first of the big Nevi'im? Chronologically. Eliyahu is here and his, and his disciple, his disciple Elisha are here. No. Chronologically, the first Big Navi, and if you read this book, it will blow your mind if you read it carefully when you realize that he's the first guy to come along and he prophesied to the northern kingdom and he told them, If you do not improve the situation, you will be destroyed. And that, of course, is the prophet. I'll do him a different cup. Amos. Right after Amos and contemporary with Amos, the other big one of the first early two, Hoshea. Amos and Hosea, then you get Ishayahu and Micha here, but these guys are prophesying to the northern kingdom. The really big deal was that their prophecies were not heeded, and in one of the most famous years in Jewish history, minus 722, a new power in the region. The new power in the region comes to the fore. Who were they? Watch. What's that? It is a sea. But not the sea you think. That, that is the Mediterranean. Alright? Now, if you don't believe me, go there. Those of you who are confused, there's the water. Alright? That's Spain, Italy, Greece. There's Turkey. There's Egypt. There's North Africa. There's the land of Israel. Alright? Now, a new power comes to the fore, which is the what we now know as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians have been around for a couple of millennia already, but this is their big push into history, their big ideological and military push into history. And they are basically an area like that, and they are unstoppable. In 722, they come along and they ethnically cleanse the entire northern kingdom. At this point, the ten tribes, and there's a split kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, Baragum, taken away into historical oblivion. They have not yet come back. From this moment on, we're left only with the kingdom of Yehuda. That is why we are from this moment on the Jewish people, from Judaism, from Yehuda. We are the remnant that survives from this cataclysm that happened to Am Yisrael. We happen to have one of the most righteous kings at the time, King Hezkiyahu. Hezkiyahu shores up the defences of the whole city of Yerushalayim, but he knows that the Neo-Assyrians are unstoppable. This is the end of the Jewish people. The prophet Yeshayahu comes to him and he says, relax, it's going to be okay. And a massive miracle happens. Nearly 200,000 soldiers just die or flee overnight and Yerushalayim is spared. That is a massive divine intervention for which we have many other chronicle and archaeological evidence that happens here. However, 
Unfortunately, despite the fact that Hezekiah effected a totally spiritual reform, his son and grandson were horrifically evil and wicked. I wish I had more time. It's very exciting to go into just how wicked they were. Eventually, a massive religious reform happened right here. Under? Temple is still up. We have a big reform under King... Well, in English, he's called Josiah. Yoshiyahu. Not Yeshayahu the prophet, but Yoshiyahu the king. A big religious reform in which they recover the Torah because all the Torah scrolls have been destroyed and so on. He effects a big reform. But it's not enough. It's not enough. As prophesied by the big prophet, I mean, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Yeshayahu is here. Alright? The three big prophets. Yeshayahu is here. Yirmiyahu is here. A hundred years later. They, they go to the prophetess Hulda, the big spiritual leader of the age, and she says, the spiritual and religious reform of King Yeshayahu is good, but it's not going to be enough. The temple is going to be destroyed. The king is going to be led away. Yirmiyahu knows this. He's prophesying to a generation about what happens eventually here in 586 BCE. The new power on the block, the big bad Babylonians, right, come and they destroy the temple. Think about this. Remember this. This is still in the book of Kings. During this entire period of Bayat Rishon, there was a consciousness that however bad things got, there could be exiles, there could be famines, there could be wars, there could be all sorts of nastiness. But however bad things got, the temple in Yerushalayim, built by Shlomo HaMelech and dedicated to God, could never be destroyed. So when the Babylonians come in 586, first of all they came in 597 and they took the king into exile. Then they came back, we appointed another king, they came back and they destroyed the temple it affected a massive cataclysm in Am Yisrael, from which in many ways we have not yet recovered. However, Yirmiyahu utters a famous prophecy. That prophecy says that this next exile, remember we had a Galut there, Galut Mitzrayim, here's our next Galut. Galut Bavel, the exile in Babylon, and he said that would last 70 years. And indeed, here, the Babylonians are conquered at the height of their power, almost overnight, by the new power in the region, which was, of course, the Persians. And the Persians come here, and they destroy, uh, they destroy the Babylonians, and they set up the entire Persian infrastructure. And they, and the big Persian leader, who was the big Persian site? Koresh. And Koresh says, so something new in the world. He says, I'm going to let the Jewish people return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. By the way, in this Galut Bavel, uh, first of all we have the big prophet Yechezkel who is sitting here, as well as Daniel and others. But Cyrus says, not only am I going to let the Jews return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, I'm going to pay for it. So he sponsors that project, sort of like the Balfour of his day. And here we come back and we rebuild the temple. The book of Kings, by the way, Sefer Malachim Bet, doesn't go that far. It finishes in the exile 
when the exiled king is brought out, Yehoiachin is brought out of prison, it's still in Galut Bavel. We need to go to the other books that happen, such as Ezra, Nehemiah, Divrei, Yamim, and some of the Nevi'im, like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, to realize that we come back from here, we rebuild the temple, inaugurating the next phase of Jewish history, the second temple period. We have various prophets who encourage and insist on rebuilding the second temple. We have a leadership. We come back. Not everyone made Aliyah back from Bavel, but we came back, we rebuild the temple, and we kick off this next cycle. We then have two very, very important figures who arrive from the Persian Empire to re-establish the whole community of Israel and establish the work of the Second Temple and unite the people again. And that, of course, is Ezar Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Yerushalayim and sets up the temple, how it's meant to be, and gets the people sorted out economically. Ezra reads the Torah, establishes the people using the Torah and the covenant with Hashem as the proper basis for that society. Does everybody follow? Well, here's what I've tried to do. Look at this. I need you to get this historical overview. I need you to understand from a framework perspective, first of all. Here's Avraham. Here's the Avot. That's Egypt. This is Har Sinai. This is moving into the land of Israel. This is Shmuel. Here we get the first big king, David. His son Shlomo builds the Bet HaMikdash. The split kingdom. The degradation of social justice and the rise of the Nevi'im. The fights with Baal and the idolatrous cults. Here is the vanquishment destruction of the northern kingdom. Now we're left with Yehuda. Yerushalayim is its capital and the temple still standing. That goes for another more than just over a hundred years. Along come the Babylonians. They destroy the temple. We go into Galut Bavel. We come out. We come back. Here's the decree of Cyrus. Astonishingly, this has never happened before. We come back. We rebuild the second temple. We get several prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and so on coming along here. Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much are right at the end of the biblical period. They are the last. Malachi is really the last of the Nevi'im. From here onwards... Am Yisrael moves down to a different level of divine inspiration and the Tanakh ends. It doesn't mean Jewish history ends, it doesn't mean the unfolding of God's will ends, but the Tanakh ends and that's where it gets up to. Everybody follow? Thanks for listening guys, I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.